have any of you read this book? It's uh, called Don't Waste Your Life. It's by John Piper. Yeah, I haven't read it either. Um, I bought it for Andrew uh, when he graduated from high school. I don't think he's read it either. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll read the back of it to you because this is why I bought in the book. Uh, the back of it's got kind of an interesting story. This is John Piper writing. He says, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll show you how to waste your life. Consider this story from February 1998 Reader's Digest. A couple took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in the Punta Gorda, Florida. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. What's wrong with that? Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That's a tragedy. I'll read the, uh, the, the next paragraph, and I'll stop. God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display his supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. The wasted life is the life without this passion. God calls us to pray and think and dream and plan and work, not to be made much of, but to make much of him in every part of our lives. Okay, now, the, the point of that, the reason I wanted to read that is the, the opening paragraph, the story about that couple, seems kind of like the American dream. And I think we're going to see a place today where the scriptures come directly in conflict with the American dream. And it's in a much more subtle way than most of the sins that churches traditionally like to bark about. Uh, the sin of greed is politically acceptable, it's socially acceptable. You don't, you don't get a lot of shame and scorn and a scarlet G for being greedy um, if you're in, the, in church circles. In fact, church people, uh, James warned us against this, but church people oftentimes will treat you extra nice because uh, you know, sometimes the fruit of your greed, you can, uh, you can have a little more money to throw our way as well. Uh, and so uh, it's one of those sins that's socially acceptable, I'm afraid, even in churches. And yet Jesus warned as harshly against this as any sin he's ever warned against. I mean, the sins, I think back to the pet sins of my childhood, the, the church I grew up in. Some of those pet sins our preacher used to rant and rave about, rant about, um, were, uh, to my way of thinking, not even in the Bible sometimes. And yet, I don't ever remember hearing sermons about this. And yet Jesus was, was plain. And, and the curious thing about this parable today is... The guy in the parable who's the bad guy doesn't really even do anything wrong except in his thinking. He does things that are easy to celebrate, easy to affirm, and yet when he sits back and thinks about what he's done, he thinks about it all wrong. And so today's message is about our attitudes really as much as about our actions. So remember we're looking at the parables with the same tools. Where's the surprise? Here's a guy who doesn't look like a bad guy and God calls him a fool. Uh, that's pretty harsh. What's the audience expect? Yeah, normally, you make good plans. You, you, you make wise plans, and you reap the benefit of those plans, and everybody says, hey, good work. That was smart thinking. That was wise planning. I wish I could plan more like that. And God says, you're dying tonight. You're a fool. Uh, so uh, that's a real surprise. Who are the good guys and bad guys in the parable? There's really only one guy in the parable. And he doesn't seem all that bad until, until he starts thinking out loud and then he reveals the attitudes of his heart, and they're not rich towards God. Uh, the audience in this one, it's kind of like the last one here. You know, we've seen a bunch of different audiences, but here Jesus is talking to a crowd, and one guy in the crowd 
kind of shouts out a question to Jesus, not really a question, more of a demand. And then Jesus responds to the guy pretty harshly. And then he tells a story, but he hasn't left the crowd. So it's not like a private parable for this one greedy guy. He's using the guy's, uh, the guy's uh, demand as sort of a teachable moment. And so the one guy says the inappropriate thing to Jesus. Jesus is harsh with him. Then he warns everybody about greed. And then he tells everybody a story to illustrate. Let's take another look. Uh, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Now, rabbis often settled disputes. And remember, this is not a society that had separation of church and state. And so to bring a civil matter to a rabbi wouldn't have been any big deal um, or it wouldn't have been out of the ordinary. That wouldn't have been beyond what was expected. And Jesus was kind of filling the position of a rabbi. He looked like a visiting rabbi to a lot of towns uh, that he went to visit because uh, he got a chance to teach in the synagogue, and he would teach outside as well. And so it might have seemed normal and natural in their society for the, guy, for the one guy to come up and expect Jesus to, to decide. But notice, the guy doesn't ask Jesus to decide. He doesn't say, Jesus, would you help us settle this dispute? Would you be our arbiter? He knows the right answer that he wants Jesus to give. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Now, inheritance laws in, in, in ancient Israel were like this. Everybody received equally unless you're the older brother, and then you get double. Uh, so the oldest brother gets double. Everybody else gets one. So if this guy's got just the one brother, maybe he's the youngest. Maybe he wants an early split so he can go out and start his own life. Maybe he wants a half-and-half half split instead of the one-third, two-thirds that the law allows. We're not really sure what his goal is here, but obviously his motive is, I want more. I want more. I want more sooner, uh, perhaps. And, and yet he's not even saying, Jesus, what do you think we should do, or will you help settle this between us? He tells Jesus what to tell the guy. Uh, I, I bet you've had this before. Um, I, I can tell you I've had it a number of times where people have come to me asking my advice on the surface. They came to me asking my advice. But I found out what they, didn't really, what they wanted wasn't really my advice, but they wanted me to affirm their decision. Have you had that before? Where, Kurt, tell me what you think about this. And I would have thought, there were no right or wrong answers that what I think is what I think. But I found out the hard way there were wrong answers to that question. Um, and uh, if I didn't think about the situation the way I was supposed to think about the situation, I found myself kind of in some trouble. And that's happened. That hasn't just happened in like one bizarre circumstance. That's happened a number of times where, where people will come and say, would you give us an opinion about this? Or would, 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 you, uh, would you help us decide? And then if I didn't, if, if my answer wasn't the expected answer or the, you know, the answer that I was supposed to give from their perspective, then there was, you know, a hostility at least to the answer. And so that's what the situation Jesus is in. And yet he sees right through it. I see a lot of comfort in Jesus's, in, in the answer Jesus gives, uh, especially for me, because there have been times where people come to me with their problems. And frankly, it's hard for me to be nice about that. I want to be tactful, but there have been a number of times where people have come to me with grievous problems from their perspective, and, and my honest internal answer is, I'm having trouble caring. This doesn't strike me as a huge problem. And yet I try to be more tactful than that, but I look at Jesus, and he wasn't very tactful at all. Does it look like, does it look like this is harsh? Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? That is harsh. And this isn't just some translation error. If you go back to the original Aramaic, he was, he was giving the guy a harsh answer. Uh, so he saw right through the guy's heart. Now, I can't see into somebody's heart, so I still don't feel too comfortable barking somebody when they ask. 
but uh, <clears throat> I can. I was thinking about a story, but it's about one of my students, and it's kind of mean, so I'm just not going to tell it. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, but and, and I, you know, I do want to be sensitive. But sometimes the concerns of you know a teenage girl when she's struggling with a social issue don't really seem all that big in the picture, uh, you know, in the in the eternal scheme of things, and yet. Uh, you know, how do, how do we be sensitive and gentle in that? Well, sometimes you know, I think it just it requires a little bit of Holy Spirit guidance, like uh, do, would you have me be gentle here? Would you have me confront the self-centeredness? You know, that kind of thing. So let's go on to verse 15. Then Jesus said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, think about that. Let's substitute any other sin for greed. Can you picture... Do, can you think of any examples of Jesus being as aggressive in warning against them? I mean, there are lots of sins, lots of things the church identifies as sin. And, and I'm not saying that they're not, they're not sinful. What I'm saying is Jesus is more aggressive about warning against greed than about those other things. And I, th- I, think, I, have a re- I think I have a clue why that is. Because other forms of sin, like when you steal from somebody, it's real obvious. It's hard to convince yourself that, well, I'm doing this for a good cause. I'm just providing for my family. Well, there, there are laws against it. It's real easy to know. You know, when you kill, um, it's real easy to figure out that's, that, that's not okay. But we live in a society today, and evidently, Jesus lived in a society 2,000 years ago where greed is sometimes a subtle thing. It's an attitude of the heart. It's a, it's a motivation. And that, that's why Jesus, I think, has to give such a stern warning because it'll creep up on you. It'll creep up on you in the church. I'll give you an example, just a conventional wisdom, and you've probably heard me say this before. We all, we all want our kids to finish school, right? Why do we want them to finish school? So they can go to college. Why do we want them to go to college? So they can get a good job. How do you measure that? What's the one that pays well? And yet, almost everybody in church wants our kids to finish school um, and go to college and, and get a good job, and we almost all measure good job the same way. Um, Unless we take a step back and think, well, wait a second. What about satisfaction? What about fulfillment? What about calling? What about God's plan? Um, and so could it be that there are people that God has not called to fulfill the American dream and, and to, to somehow serve his kingdom another way? Well, I believe so. So Jesus says, watch out. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know, uh, I bet you've seen the... Um, Bumper sticker, it's, it's kind of dated now, but, but have you seen the one that says, he who dies with the most toys wins? Um, this, this, the thing that's funny about this to me is it, I can, it's hard for me to think of a Bible standard that is so overtly contradicted by, by conventional wisdom in our culture. And can you picture a bumper sticker that says, dishonor your parents? Or you know, don't love your neighbor, hate your neighbor? Can you, where else, most of the time our culture, pop culture, will distort or deny or ignore the standards of our faith, but it's rare that pop culture, conventional wisdom will just openly contradict, but that seems like almost the opposite of what Jesus said. He says, life, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
Mark Twain defined civilization as a limitless multiplica- multiplication of unnecessary necessities. And that was about 100 years ago. He had a way with words. Um, Ivan Boy- Boski is a real person, a guy from the 80s. He sounds like a character from the movie Wall Street um, who, who said a similar thing about greed. But Ivan Boski was a real man. He, in fact, he was the darling of Wall Street till he went to prison because uh, he had some shady dealing. And he said, greed is all right. Oh, by the way, speaking at a business school graduation, when he says, greed is all right. I want you to know I think greed is healthy. You can be greedy and still feel good about yourself. And Newsweek that week commented on his article or commented on his speech, and they said this, the strangest thing when we look back will not be just that Ivan Boski could say that at a business school graduation, but that it was greeted with laughter and applause. That's 20 years ago where the guy's saying, yeah, greed's good. It'll you know, work that. And they're laughing and applauding, but I, I wouldn't really say that we've changed that much in the last 20 years. Um, I, I think uh, I saw a lot of the young people I talked to seem a little more in tune to this. The 80s were known for self-indulgent and greed um, and, and just a- acquisition. That's when yuppies and were, uh, the, the phrase was kind of coined. So uh, I, I do think we've turned away from that a little bit, but not, not totally. We've already studied the parable of the four soils uh, a couple, uh, several weeks ago. Greed was one of the problems there. I don't know if you remember, but uh, in Matthew 13, 2, Jesus said, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. So what choked the guy's faith? The deceitfulness of wealth. And, and, and that's, a, that's a key principle. Wealth is deceitful. Colossians 3.5, this is Paul talking about the same thing. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And take a look at this list that defines our earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. All those seem to be kind of wrapped up in the same general area of misconduct, don't they? And then look at the last one, greed, which is idolatry. And so it's like Paul's identifying two major areas of of <clears throat> misbehavior that typifies your earthly nature um, and greed which he also goes on to define as idolatry is is another part of that idolatry is bowing before something that is not worthy of honor and here's the saddest thing about idolatry not only is the thing you bow before not worthy of honor but the thing you bow before cannot deliver um, idolatry is worshiping false gods you know whatever comes before God or whatever comes between you and God is an idol uh, not only is it disobedient and defiant to God's standards, but ultimately it's unproductive. Your idols will not deliver you. Uh, one of the longest passages on money is also written by Paul to Timothy. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's my favorite part of that passage. Godliness plus contentment to me seems like the recipe for satisfaction. I think that's what Paul's saying there. A joyful Christian life. But uh, look at his warning. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Well, I mean, we live in a society that's got food and clothing are the least of our worries. We have more food, more clothes than we can bear, um, and yet do we live in a world that's content with its possessions? Verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
Bible's timeless. This was true 2,000 years ago, no less true today. Let's go back to Luke and finish the story. After confronting greed, Jesus tells this story. Verse 16, and he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Reasonable question. Guy needs to store his crops. He's had a bumper crop, a good year. He's got to find a place to store them. There's nothing wrong with asking the question, looking for a solution. Verse 18, this is what he said. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Let's stop there and take a look. This looks like good stewardship. He still hasn't done anything wrong to replace his barns with bigger barns so that he can store the stuff and not waste it. That just seems like good planning. Up until now, we can pat the guy on the back and say, that seems sensible and wise. And the problem comes with his attitude. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry is typical hedonistic uh, uh, philosophy. So the guy's got three problems that he identifies in the little speech he makes to himself. He's self-centered. If you look back at the verse, notice all the personal pronouns. It's I, 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 my, my, my. He's very materialistic. He's satisfied with himself and with his lot in life because why? He's got a bunch of stuff. And hedonistic, eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, what's the end of that phrase? Eat, drink, and be merry, why? For tomorrow we die. Well, uh, Jesus changes a little bit. Tonight you'll die. <laughs> That's what he says to this guy. Verse 20. But God said, to him, God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Let's take a look at that word fool. This is one of those words that doesn't mean the same thing uh, now that it did back then. Um, fool today means not clever, um, goofy perhaps, um, lacking in wisdom, perhaps lacking in intelligence, right? Uh, we consider a fool to be somebody that's not, not trustworthy. We don't really consider a fool today to be somebody dangerous except to himself. We don't really consider a fool today to be somebody who's evil. But the word fool, as used by Jesus, and, and it's used in the Bible a few different times, carries two aspects it's the aspect of not being all that bright is definitely there but there's a moral aspect to being a fool 2,000 years ago that's not really there today we wouldn't consider a fool necessarily to be a bad person we just consider him to be a dumb person but a fool in bible times when jesus uses the word fool it can it contains stubbornly evil and dumb too because that's <laughs> that's how you got there um in fact you could take a walk through the book of Proverbs. This is a really mean thing, and I didn't do it. I'm just going to repeat it. But one of my teacher friends several years ago said to a, a, one of our students, Billy, you should read the book of Proverbs. It's all about you. Um, and uh, I, I, the kid never understood what he was saying. But uh, take a look at what Proverbs says, and the word fool is in all these verses. It's the opposite of wisdom. A fool acts without counsel. A fool is indiscreet, hot-tempered, easily led astray. A foolish decisions end in ruin. And a fool, if he can learn at all, only learns the hard way. Uh, Bible says, correct a wise man. This is Proverbs, and he'll become wiser still. Correct a fool, and you're pretty much just wasting your breath. Just, it, I paraphrase there at the end, but that's, that's what it says. Okay, back to Luke. 
The parable ends with Jesus saying, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. How can we be rich toward God? What can we give to God? I mean, is God, does God have his hand out looking for our, our blessings? I mean, he's got everything, I've got nothing, or very little in, in comparison. He doesn't need anything from me, but he's giving clear directions in Scripture for what we should do with our money in some ways. Um, and again, I don't think buying barns with your money is a bad thing to do unless you follow it up with this guy, uh, with this guy's attitude. Now I've got plenty of good things. Take, I'm going to take life easy. Being rich toward God, I think, rec- is the recognition, it's one of those things we learned in crown class, that it's his, not mine. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means the earth and everything in it belongs to God. If that's true, what part of it belongs to me? Yeah, there's nothing left. I'm not that great at math, but I can do that one. If the earth and everything in it belongs to God, then no part of it belongs to me. Well, what, what then is the status of the thing that, the stuff that feels like my stuff? Then that still belongs to God and he's entrusted it to my care to manage it. This reminds me of the parable. You know, there are a couple stewardship parables like that. In the story, what could have been an opportunity for generosity and blessing, the guy's wealth, the abundance, the bumper crop, instead turned into a stumbling block. And I think that's the biggest risk we run in, in our society today because God has blessed us richly. We are, we, we are a society of relatively speaking great wealth what passes for poor people in our world in in the united states in 2008 if you you go any other time in history or other places in the world and those people are still pretty well fed and well clothed right Um, what traditionally historically has defined poverty you know not having enough food not having shelter not having clothing those have largely been eliminated in our society not completely and i you know i'm compassionate for that but they've sure been eliminated in the circles most of us run in. And so what, what passes for poor is not having as much as the next guy in our society. And in our society, because of conspicuous consumption and advertising, you know, we tend to, to reach and grab for more and more and more rather than being what, what Jesus said here, rich toward God. The rich fool is a study in contrasts or contradictions, I would say. He's a fool, not a success. He's a servant, not a master. We're a, we're a slave to whatever controls us, right? And he's poor, not rich. He thinks he's rich because he's got a lot of stuff in his barns, but he's poor in the ways that really matter. So what's the alternative? Jesus finishes after this parable. He goes on and, and does a short sermon, very similar to one in Matthew 6, uh, that's a, a principle that's all over the scriptures about worrying about money. Let's, let's take a quick look at his sermon. Verse 22, Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life, since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? The ravens. Um, do you know anything about ravens in ancient culture? They were not clean animals. They were not edible. They were like, it's like going to the bottom of the creature heap, 
when Jesus gives this, this example. God cares even about the ravens. I don't know what we would say, like, consider the cockroaches. I mean, God, they're, they're, they survive no matter what, they, you know, or consider the whatever, the, whatever, something that we don't respect that much or we don't value highly. Yeah, God takes care of them. Uh, and, and how much more valuable are we than that? Jesus identifies a couple problems with worry. It's unnecessary because God's on the job. It's ineffective. You can't add anything to your life by worrying. And it's even harmful. And modern medicine has demonstrated to us that not only is it unproductive, it's counterproductive, right? Corey Tinboom says this, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. And whenever I talk about worry, I feel like uh, I should apologize to people of a different temperament than me because there are definitely temperamental differences among us. And some of us are more inclined towards worry. Some of us are less inclined towards worry um, based on our different temperaments. And yet, when Jesus says don't do it, it, it kind of it moves from being a personality difference to being a... Uh, Jesus isn't cruel. He wouldn't say don't make this choice if we, had a cho- if we didn't have a choice. And so I, I don't... <laughs> I don't want to beat you up if your temperament's different than mine, but I don't want to give you a pass um, and say, well, just because your temperament's different or your personality's more inclined to this. Well, we each have things that we you know, have more proclivities for, but if the Bible says don't do it, then we ought, to, we ought to try to avoid it, I'm thinking. Let's finish the sermon. Luke 27, consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire how much more will he clothe you O you of little faith verse 29 and do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink do not worry about it for the pagan world runs after all such things and your father knows that you need them but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well this is not some fringe doctrine you can find the same sermon almost in matthew 6 paul says much the same thing in philippians 4 Verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. That's pretty dramatic. Uh, In Isaiah somewhere it says um, that there will be a time of peace so much that people will turn their swords into plowshares. They'll melt down their swords and turn them into, into farm implements. Now you and I can picture a time of peace. We're not really in a time of peace now. But can you picture a time of such perfect peace that we have so little fear of our neighbors and our rivals and our enemies that we can turn all of our weaponry into farm tools because we can't imagine ever needing them again? I mean, that's, that's peace beyond my ability to imagine. I think that's a similar thing to what Jesus is saying. Do you trust God to provide for you? Do you trust God to provide for you enough to give up what you've got and trust him to give you more? That's, that's, that's pretty bold. Verse 33, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that's the end of the reading. The point here is that Jesus has identified for us two kinds of treasure. There's the treasure that's temporary, the stuff that went in the guy's barns, the stuff that goes in our bank accounts and in our homes and and that we drive around. There's the temporary treasure, the you-can't-take-it-with-you treasure, and then there's the permanent treasure. Um, And I think he's given us a couple avenues to test ourselves. Test yourself this way. Look at your heart. Are you anxious? 
Jesus says, don't be. Look at your finances. Are you generous? And Jesus says, we should be. Most of these words have come from Jesus today. I've just read them to you. So as we pray, as we go back to worship, I encourage you to make some decisions, make some choices. If necessary, make some changes. Don't waste your life. Let's pray. Lord, I don't want to waste my life and worry, and Lord, I don't want to waste my life on accumulating things that are going to be gone when I face you. Lord, I don't want to stand before you and say, look at my IRA or my swimming pool or my clothes or my car or my shells or whatever. And Lord, I, I know the people in this room don't want to either. Lord, we want to hear you say, well done. We want to hear you call us good and faithful servants. Lord, I ask that you would show us how to do that. Show us changes we need to make so that, uh, so that we can accomplish your purposes in our generation. Lord, help us to spend our time and our energy and our resources and our money in ways that will honor you and advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.